And I haven't really been really honing in on, on the politic aspect of this, that we're not Democratic, we're not Republican, we're not uh, independent. We might all, we're probably all over the spectrum on that. What we are is, is kingdom of God focused. And, and this last summer, uh, I preached a message when we were in the series of the waters we swim in specifically on politics um, and really the history of politics and, and what is separation of church and state and the guy, Roger Williams, who, who wrote that book back in the 1600s and, and uh, so if you want more information, that's, that's online. Feel free to, to listen to that and the waters we swim in on politics. And, and uh, that, that's really specifically on, on that issue. And this um, is a little bit more, more vague of how do we as Christians live and how should we uh, conduct ourselves within society and within culture. And, and, uh, and uh, so that's what we're going to be specifically looking at this morning. So this week's sermon is love, love thy neighbor. And, and this phrase is very common phrase of in, in the world, but not of the world. Uh, that as Christians, we're called to be in the world, or we are clearly living in the world, but are we not to be of the world? And so I want to specifically look at that passage. And so it's also uh, a passage, uh, at least a, a phrase that has been used in, in church history or throughout the church uh, for sure in my life. Um, and as I know, several of you who, who grew up in the church and that kind of thing. And so uh, story time, uh, I, and, and I, I know I share a lot of stories of my personal upbringing and how I was raised within the church and within a small little sect of Christianity called fundamentalism. But that whole idea of being in the world and not of the world in a lot of ways was, was abused. Um, and everything had to do with what is worldliness? And, and so if, if it resembled the world in any way, shape, or form, we shouldn't do it. Therefore, it's cool to have uh, a, a facial hair as a man. Therefore, men aren't allowed to have facial hair. Uh, you know, women uh, are starting to wear slacks. And so ladies uh, have to wear skirts, uh, jean skirts, you know, down to the ankles, that kind of thing. And, and whatever, whatever it was, there was all these different aspects of what, what it meant. And that, and that phrase, hey, we're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And so if anything that we do resembles what the world is like, then we shouldn't do that and, and kind of quarantined ourselves. And, and one, one aspect of that was that we weren't even allowed to really have friends that weren't believers. And, and they would use this illustration all the time. I remember in youth group, they would, they would pull out a chair. I'm not going to stand on a chair now, but they would have a, a really, you know, the biggest guy in the youth group stand up on the chair and they'd get the smallest person in the youth group to, to be down on the floor. And, and the whole idea, the guy up on top of the chair was supposed to try to pull the, the little person up onto the, uh, up. And, the, and then the little person was supposed to try to pull the big guy down and, the, and the, the little one always won. So the whole idea was, hey, I'm, I'm a strong Christian. I'm not tempted by the world. Hey, man, even a little temptation can drag you down. Don't even go there, right? And that was kind of this whole idea of, hey, I'm, I'm in the world, but I shouldn't be of the world. And so don't even associate with things that might be worldly. And it was kind of abused that way. And, and so I think, uh, really, this is prominent, not just for people who maybe grew up in the church like me, but maybe you didn't grow up in the church, but you viewed the church that way, that they just, they wanted to be so separatist from everything that we did or the world does that, that it's, not, it's not attractive. And, and is that what we're called to actually do and be as believers and Christians? And so that's really what I want to look at. So uh, I do have a question. Does anyone know who this gentleman is? Well, not Zach. I told Zach. He was looking at PowerPoint earlier. Anybody? Any idea? This is uh, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Fuller. 
Fuller Seminary, if you've heard of it. Um, he didn't start it, it was just named after him. Andrew Fuller lived in the, in the mid-1700s, and this last Tuesday, uh, I went to a conference that was all about this guy, Andrew Fuller, and I, and I didn't really know a whole lot about him. He was an uh, English Baptist um, pastor, and it was a really interesting uh, story, just his life and, and where he came, and as he was kind of battling, what does it mean kind of where we're looking at today, and this idea of, okay, I need to remain true as a Christian, but there's these two opposite perspectives that I, I don't want to err on either side of that. What can we do to look at, at God's word? Charles Spurgeon, a great uh, American pastor back in the day, called the Andrew Fuller, the greatest theologian of his day, and... Um, and so anyways, I, 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 it was, he's fresh on my mind, and, and I just kind of really discovered him because of that. And so I've been reading a little bit more from him. And, and so I do have a couple quotes from him today. And so I just want to start off with, with this quote. Um, and I just, I mean, I, I wish that we still talked like this, kind of, maybe not, but I just, it's a, I just love it. Oh, let not the slight of wicked men who lie in wait to deceive, nor even the pious character of good men who yet may be under great mistakes, draw me Aside, all right. So he's saying there's two perspectives here, right? The, those wicked men who who are trying to deceive, and even even good men, men that I might even look up to, don't let either of those perspectives draw me aside. And then he adds the third aspect of nor do thou suffer my own fancy to misguide me, Lord. Thou hast given me a determination to take up no principle at second hand, right? I don't want to look anywhere else beyond but to search for everything at the pure fountainhead, thy word. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at the pure fountainhead, God's word. And what does it have to say about this phrase of in, but not of the world? This whole idea of in, but not of, because what you will find, now you can look at the Bible and you can read it cover to cover, and you will actually never find the phrase in the world, but not of the world. It's actually not in the Bible. And yet, that's a phrase that is so perpetual within our culture, at least within the church. So I want to look at a passage that deals with this specifically. And there's a lot of passages about how we should conduct ourselves within our culture, within our society. But I want to look at what Jesus specifically has to say about this. And you can understand why people use that phrase. It's not like it comes out of nowhere, but it's actually not like a verse specifically. So let's dig into what God's word actually says. This is John chapter 17, verses 13 through 19. Jesus says this, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one, specifically the devil here. Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they, may, uh, that they too may be truly sanctified. And so there, there's a lot, and, we, and this is a whole passage in itself that we could really dig into just this, but I, I want to specifically pull out the ideas of this in but not of, and, and where does that come from? And so there's three different ways of looking at this passage. The first is similar to how I grew up, that we're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Now we need to abstain from anything that's worldly, right? This idea of, of woe is me, right? This, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. 
The heavens are laid off somewhere beyond the blue, right? I just got to endure my time here until someday I'm going to be caught up into glory and go to this place called heaven, which, which is true in a lot of ways. But, but is that really the whole message of what the Bible is teaching, right? I'm just kind of stuck here, so I better make the most of it. Right, so, so what do they do? People that have this, they, they remove themselves from the world, they quarantine themselves from the world, that they, they withdraw from society. That's, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is, is the opposite, of the complete opposite spectrum of like, no, we are in the world, right? I, I know we're not of it, but, but we're here, right? So just, just go with it. We can, we can do things. We can, we can actually be part of this culture and this society. Uh, when I was in college, uh, one of my presidents, um, it was a Christian school, and he had this, this phrase that he would use all the time called a biblical truism. And, and what that meant, I don't know. <laughs> but he would use it all the time. And specifically, he went to a passage in 1 Samuel 16, 7 that says, the man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And so he would actually say, well, it's a biblical truism that man looks on the outward appearance. Therefore, we should look like Christians, right? That was his whole, whole thing. So this is just a biblical truism. We're, we're in the world. So, hey, let's just go with it. Let's just enjoy it. And yet that's not what this passage is saying. And specifically, if we, if we look at this, the pure fountainhead of God's word, and we don't force our own agenda or preconceived notions or pre-understandings or, or my, our own ideology into the text, and we actually look at what does the Bible actually say? What does Jesus actually say here? Then I think we will be convinced that Jesus is saying something pretty unique that's not these two perspectives. And so we don't have, we're not being deceived by the wicked side of things or the good of people who don't know or even our own fancy, but specifically the pure fountainhead of God's word. And it is specifically what Jesus says is actually reversed of that phrase of in but not of. He says, no, we're not of, but we're sent into. That's what Jesus says. Specifically, look, specifically looking at this passage, right? Verse 16, they are not of the world. And then at the tail end of verse 18, I have sent them into the world. That's a different way of, of saying this, that I'm not supposed to just completely remove my, myself from, from society. Jesus is calling us to be sent into society. But there's still this phrase that not of the world. So what does it mean to not be of the world? And there's a lot of verses on this. What, is, what do we do and what does our culture look like and, and how should we conduct ourselves as a Christian within our society? But 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17 says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world... And then he's going to specifically list these three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This whole idea of this lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's what it means to not be worldly. And that this isn't some kind of external thing that, oh, I look a certain way or I, I abstain from certain things. It's my own heart. It's my attitude towards things. And there's something within us with our, our fallen nature of being human that continually wants these things. And so I want to go back and kind of look at 
some passages of scripture that highlight these three aspects, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And what we'll specifically see is that this has been the evil one's desire, as if we use that phrase from John 17, the passage we looked at, that Jesus is praying that we would be protected from these kinds of temptations because this is what the tempter does. He tempts us, every single one of us on these areas all the time. Continually, I mean day after day, moment by moment. So I want to go back to the beginning. I want to go back to the first temptation in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. And I want you to, to pay attention. I actually just, I kind of skip around a little bit. Oh, no, no, not this passage. Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 6 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Right, and that, that phrase, did God really say, that is, that is the root of all of our temptations, of all of our desire to give in to temptation and commit sin, always comes down to that. Did God really say? I mean, did he actually say don't do that? Did he actually say that we need to do these things? I, he couldn't have actually meant that because that's impossible. Right? Did God actually say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God said you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, you must not touch it or you will die. And then Satan, the serpent, says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And right here, when the woman saw, and here we have the lust of the eyes, that the fruit of the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and pleasing to the eye and also desiring for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. This pride of life that there's, if I do this thing, if I commit this sin, it's gonna, it's gonna actually improve my life. It's gonna make things better. And then enter the fall and sin for all humanity. But as we're gonna see as we fast forward to the life of Christ, the devil uses the exact same tactics on Jesus out in the wilderness this is where I kind of jump around a little bit here. Uh, chapter four in Matthew. It says, then, I was led a, uh, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. This lust of the flesh. You've been fasting. You are starving. You're God. You can command these stones to become bread. And he tempts him just with his own flesh. You can be full again. And then skipping to verse five, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand in the highest point of the temple. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift, uh, they will lift, up, lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And here we have this pride of life. You, hey, if, if you're actually God, then prove it. Jump off. The angels will come to your rescue. And this whole idea of, of this, this thing that Jesus maybe would want, of just being delivered or, or wanting to be acknowledged about who he really is. And then he quotes scripture back to the devil. And then the last one, he then, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. And here we see the lust of the eyes. It's the same exact thing, in a little bit different order, a little bit different flavor, 
but nothing's changed. It's the same exact cactus that the devil uses today. I want to show you this person. You're not, you're not married to this individual, but man, don't, don't they look good? Hey, I, I want to show you this, this food, this, this thing. I want your God to be your belly. Oh you, oh, you want a promotion. You want to look good. You want to be acknowledged for what you're doing, all these different things, and you can fill in the blank. It's exactly the same thing that we all struggle with. And so this lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is what is rampant within our own hearts, with our own minds, and we all struggle with this, every single one of us. And so is that, were you just left with that? Are we just supposed to just try to fight it, do our best, make some laws, make some rules so we don't fall into temptation, that kind of thing? So what is our hope? Well, all of our hope is in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 23 say this. This is the Apostle Paul now praying. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe that we're not left to our own devices. That power is the incomparably great power for us who believe that power, sorry, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms far above the rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that when we believe that we are filled with this power of the Holy Spirit and we're able to combat temptation. Again, temptation is not a sin to feel an inclination or want something that, that's not mine or I shouldn't have is not sin. It's when I give in to that temptation that it becomes sin. But something's changed. We have a new master that I'm no longer ruled by sin and death and the serpent and Satan, but this power now that is the Holy Spirit and Christ that lives in me that allows me to fight. So just briefly then, what does it mean to be sent, right? If not, I'm not of the world, that there's something in my heart that's, that's changed. I'm no longer only giving in to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, that I now can combat that because of the victory that Jesus won on the cross. And so now we're sent. And this is what I want to spend the remainder of my time really looking at. What does it mean then to be sent? If we are Christians and not of the world, I'm fighting those temptations then to be sent into the world on mission. That's what Jesus did. And that's what he's called us to do and to be. And we could look specifically at Matthew chapter 16, 18, of the gates of hell will not prevail. We've spent a lot of time talking about this in our church in the sense of this gates are a defensive mechanism and that the gospel, the power of, of Jesus Christ and the freedom over sin will not be held back. And the gates of hell cannot withstand the good light of Jesus Christ. And so we go into the kingdom of darkness. We are sent into the kingdom of darkness to trash the joint. And Jesus specifically says that in Matthew 28, 18b through 20, that we are to go into all the world preaching the gospel and teach them everything that Jesus has commanded in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I want to go back to Andrew Fuller and a little bit of context uh, where he's at, that he uh, was a pastor and there was two different aspects of religion. And so I want to take this idea and, and not necessarily focus on the religious aspect of that he was combating, 
which that could be us in our culture as well, these turbulent times of, of different views of religion and, and who God is. But fill in the blanks. This could be political. This could be economic. This could be uh, educational, whatever it may be. He says there's got to be some middle ground here that we can all, that we can all agree on. And so he's going to mention a gentleman, uh, Sandman, and there were some Sandmanians, and, and that doesn't matter. But he's going to specifically mention this guy who, who is a heretic, who is causing some issues. But he says, even this individual who I completely disagree with on so many different things, there are actually some things that I do agree with. So let's start there. Let's start with the things that we agree on. And so it's kind of a longer quote. I've got a whole other slide after this, but just, just listen to what he says here. By the strain of writing and conversation which prevails in this connection, and he's specifically talking about his relationship with this guy, Sandeman, it would seem that the supposed absurdities of others are the life of their religion, all right? This is what he's saying here, that he's specifically attacking somebody and that they have this one thing that they're trying to go after and attack and put this group of people down, right? They're, they're going after these supposed absurdities of others, are, it's, and that they're the life of their religion. And that if these supposed absurdities were once to cease, their zeal would expire with them. That their whole purpose of this religion uh, institution is to just attack and attack and attack. And if they finally put those people down, well, now they've got, they've got nothing left. Who, who are they? I love this phrase, it is the vulture and not the dove that is apparent in all their writings. Who will say that Mr. Sandeman sought the good of his opponents when all through his publications he took every opportunity to hold them up to contempt and with, every, and with evident marks of pleasure to describe them and their friends as walking in a devout path to hell. That's what he's doing. Oh, you don't, you don't agree with me? You're going to hell. And it's just this attacking like a vulture instead of coming in peace like a dove. The same is manifestly the spirit of his followers, though they may not possess his sarcastic talents. <laughs> I love, it's just like he's being sarcastic in the fray. I love that. But are these the weapons of the Christian warfare? Right? Is this really what we're called to do as Christians, to, to attack somebody who has a different view than I do? And he goes on to say this. Second, it may be that separation from other Christians is sometimes necessary. And again, this doesn't have to be Christians in our context. Sometimes it's necessary, but a good man will practice separation with a grieved heart. And yet I think there's so much rejoicing, right? When we disagree with you and we're different, we're, we got a different denomination, fill in the blank, should be responded with a grieved heart. He will seek to diminish the breach rather than widen it. To consider the things wherein he agrees with others and as far as he conscientiously can to act with them. Right, that we, we agree on this. There's some common ground here. What, let's start there. If we see individuals or a community who insisted, or excuse me, if we see an individuals or community who, instead of such regret, are only employed in censoring all who follow not with them as enemies to the truth, but instead of acting with them in things wherein they are agreed, are studious to render the separation as wide as possible and glory in it, right? Why, why do we have to really focus on our differences? Can we hesitate to say that this is not Christianity? So that's, that's where he's getting. He's specifically talking, again, within religion. But what does it mean for us in our, in our culture? And so what are we like? Are we like the vulture? Do we want to just simply attack? Do we want to simply look at our neighbor or our friends or our coworkers and say, this is where you're wrong, 
Or can we present the dove instead and start with things that we can agree on culturally, societally, individually, and then say, but Jesus. Um, more recently in 2010, uh, Tim Keller uh, wrote a book called Center Church, and, and he's going to take those exact same principles that Andrew Fuller was writing about in the mid-1700s, and he's going to apply it to us now, here, today. Now, what does this actually mean for us as Christians, and how can we be sent into the world and agree with certain things with people who we couldn't disagree more with things? How, how do we do this? How do we go about pointing them to Jesus if they want nothing to do with Jesus? So again, kind of a longer quote, so forgive me, but this is Tim Keller, uh, Center Church, page 125. He says this, when entering a culture, another main task is to discern its dominant worldviews or belief systems because contextualized gospel ministry should affirm the beliefs of the culture wherever it, it can be done with integrity. A worldview is simply the, the glasses in which I look at culture or the world around me. And, and four major worldview questions that, that, that everyone wants to know the answer to, and that I think Christianity is the only religion that can answer those questions, is where did we all come from? How did this get here? You see all this beauty around us, right? This is this lens, and I look at it through a biblical worldview where other people don't have a biblical worldview. How did it get here? What, what then went wrong? I see cancer and death and horrible things. What actually went wrong? And the majority of the world is going to say, yeah, this doesn't seem, something doesn't seem right here. Even though they may not have a biblical worldview, they have their own worldview. And then what can be done to fix it? And instead of Jesus, their view might be politics. Their view might be financially. It could be uh, educational, all these different things. What can be done to fix it? And then what does the future hold? Those are four worldview questions that, Wrap up, everyone has one. Whether they know what it is or not, they have one. So these, this is what he's talking about, this worldview. When we enter a culture, we should be looking for two kinds of beliefs. The first are what I call A beliefs, which are beliefs that correspond to some parts of biblical teaching. However, we will also find B beliefs, what may be called Defeater beliefs, beliefs of the culture that, that lead listeners to find some Christian doctrines implausible or overtly offensive. For example, and I've got more specific examples of this that we're going to get into, but a defeater belief might be the example of, I, uh, I believe in evolution. I believe uh, this process of how humanity came, and evolved, not me personally, this is, I'm sorry, I'm speaking hypothetically here, uh, of somebody that said, you know, I, we, we evolved out of this primordial ooze and, and life came out and, and over uh, millions of years that we, we evolved into human beings. And yet your Bible says that God created them in seven days. I cannot believe that. I don't need to believe that to believe in Jesus. That's a defeater belief. So what can we actually believe? What is this A belief that we can all agree on? B beliefs contradict Christian truth directly at points that we may call B doctrines. We must therefore affirm that culture's A beliefs and then use those beliefs and challenge them to accept the B doctrines. Every culture, including our own, can readily grasp part of the truth, but not all of it. And we know that biblical truth, because it is from God, is coherent and consistent with itself. What we refer to as A and B doctrines are equally true and interdependent and they, flow, and they follow from each other. The confrontation occurs because every culture is profoundly inconsistent, confirming 
uh, excuse me, conforming to some biblical truths, but not to others. In those in particular, culture holds certain A beliefs. They are inconsistent not to hold B beliefs because of the scriptures as, they re- as, as the revealed truth of God are always consistent. These inconsistencies reveal the points where a culture is vulnerable to confrontation, right? To say, hey, if you believe this and you reject this, that doesn't, that's inconsistent. How can this then convince you that this is true? And this is what God has revealed to be true. We reveal inconsistency in the cultural beliefs and assumptions about reality. With the authority of the Bible, we allow one part of the culture along with the Bible to critique another part. The persuasive force comes from basing our critique on something we can affirm within the culture, this B belief. And so I want to look at now specifically an example of this. And I want you to think of this because this is anything, anything within our culture, this, this can apply to say, what can we actually agree on? And so I want to use one that would probably be as extreme as you could get of somebody being an atheist, right? The, the B belief, Right, this idea that if there is a God, how can evil exist? Right? Maybe you struggle with that. Maybe that's a, a question that you have. But somebody who's saying that there can't be a God. How can there not be a God because of how evil everything is and how, how wicked everything is? Well, then the A doctrine here is the goodness of this world. Look at how beautiful things can be in this world. Look how wonderful life actually is. The A belief in our culture is there is so much good and beauty in this world. And if we can get them to agree on that, then this really difficult aspect, it points out their inconsistencies. Because as a Christian, we've talked about, I've preached on this, I teach on this all the time in in class. How does evil exist? How did sin sin come into the world if God is really in control of everything? That's a difficult question. But I think a more difficult question is the person who says, I don't believe in God, and yet they believe in good. The problem of good to an atheist is a much more difficult question to answer than the problem of evil for a Christian. And those are the inconsistencies that we see. So how can there actually be something that's good in this world if it wasn't created by a good God? And so that's an example. And there could be so many other things within this, our sexuality and, and all these different things. Okay, the, the, the A doctrine of a, of a good and godly marriage between a man and a woman, the B belief, right? That's, how do, we, how do we get there? How do we, we can look at the family. Let's elevate the family of this A doctrine of, of good and health and marriage and this B belief of, I, I struggle with what the Bible's saying on this. Again, point out the inconsistencies. And this is not easy to do, if you've ever been part of those conversations, but I think Andrew Fuller is right on this. This idea of do we go into a conversation with the agenda of a vulture? I'm just gonna circle around and I'm gonna peck at you until you die, because you're wrong, you're inconsistent. Let me, let me pick at it instead of like the dove of saying, hey, what is this A belief? What do you believe about this world? What is a worldview that you really believe? And can we see eye to eye on that? And if we do, then, then maybe we can advance the gospel. And this is hard to do. This is hard to do when we're in relationships. How do we know when to bring things up? How do we know when to say, hey, this is what Jesus says. This is the gospel. You're wrong here. Let's point these things out, whatever that may be. And so ending with Romans chapter 1, 16 through 17. 
The Apostle Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It's that in our culture that when we come upon this and we we don't want to be the vulture, we want to be the dove at some point, we can't just only talk about the A doctrines. At some point, we have to bring up something controversial, something inconsistent with them. And yet we need to be reminded that we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. The fact that there was a God-man named Jesus that came to this earth to die for my sins. That may ruin friendships. What Paul is saying here is that we shouldn't be ashamed of this gospel. That we need to continually preach this because we have been sent into the world for this specific purpose. The righteous will live by faith. And so, in closing, just gospel application. In what ways are we living, not just in, but of the world? Examine your own hearts to say this lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Is this something that I'm really grasping onto right now that I feel like it has complete victory over me? And we're not embracing the truth of the gospel. Jesus has already won that. So what are things that we need to repent of? And then secondly, are we living as God's people on mission? Are we being sent into the world? Do we believe that? Are we just quarantine ourselves. I'm afraid of confrontation. I don't want to share my faith. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of salvation. We're going to enter into a time of communion like we do every week. And, and uh, there's not bread here, but it will be, right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> the bread that represents the body of Christ that is broken for us. And the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us to absorb the wrath of God that we all deserved that Jesus paid it all. And we just sang, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that is signified in our taking of these elements. And all I would ask is, are you a follower of Jesus? If you say, yeah, I am. I, w- I want to be a, a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're not, but you, this could maybe be your first time taking communion. Because I want to be set free from those desires, those aspects that I want to be satisfied in something and, and we can be satisfied in God. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, we'd love for you to come partake of these. We're going to sing a couple songs. Feel free to partake of that. And, and, and those of you that are in this room that need to confess, confess. We do have some people in, in the back if you want to like to pray with somebody. Again, they're not you know, super special prayers or anything like that, but uh, we'd love for you to just um, go back, uh, be prayed for, be prayed with, if that's something that you would, you would like. As we sing, as we pray, and as we partake of this meal that Jesus instituted thousands of years ago. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for our time here together this morning. I thank you that as we look at culture, that we shouldn't be removed from it. That, that Jesus specifically said that we are to go into the world, that we are sent into the world on mission. And that we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel, that we should proclaim that. And God, would you just help us on those aspects of these A beliefs and these B beliefs, What can we do to present ourselves like a dove to find uh, some kind of of peace offering that we agree on? Some aspect of their worldview that we can see exactly eye to eye on and then, as difficult as sometimes it may be, present these inconsistencies of the B belief. And we would be 
understanding enough of your word that we can present these with good and sound arguments. So God, I pray now that as we partake of these elements, as we sing, as we remember what your son did for us on the cross, paying for our sins and removing them as far as the east is from the west, that he won the victory over, the, over Satan that day, that he crushed that ancient serpent's head, the deceiver. And so now Jesus intercedes on my behalf. And so when I'm tempted, I can now look to Christ, the author and the finisher of my faith to help me through and guide me through temptation. So God, now would you be honored and glorified because it's only in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.